hello, hello, and welcome back to Too Much Too Loud with Karen and Siriana. Thank you all so much for the hype and the support and love we received after our introductory episode released last week. Yeah, we're truly so grateful for all of you and very excited for today's episode because it's kind of a nod to the first episode we recorded together back when the podcast was question by question. And that episode was all about growing up in white spaces. Yeah, and that conversation was so impactful and so special to me because it for sure, which I don't think I realized at the time when we recorded it, that that was the first time I had said so many of those emotions and feelings that I had out loud about growing up in whiteness, especially because I was told at every moment to be grateful. And that was really the start of this journey that I'm on now of figuring out who I am. And Karen and I haven't really discussed how we navigate white spaces now as adults with each other. So I'm super jazzed to record this today. Yeah, I share such similar feelings, Siriana, about that episode. Like, it was the first time that I was sitting down and having an honest conversation about how the spaces I was raised in and the people I was surrounded by during childhood, like, really affected me. Um, and it was really helpful and special to be able to do it with someone who had such similar experiences as well growing up. And I also know that a a lot of other BIPOC folks were able to resonate with that episode as well. So I think that's really special. Absolutely. And I know that we both really hope that today's episode can be useful for others that are existing in white spaces like Karen and I are now as adults. But before we begin, it's time for what our pocket of joy is. Karen, what is your pocket of joy? Yay. Well, today's been interesting because um, as we're recording this episode, there's a lot of talk about Roe v. Wade being overturned. So, you know, there's a lot of sadness and anger that have, for me at least, I've been feeling towards this potential devastating decision. So for my pocket of joy, which I think is very important to have when there are things like that happening in the world... <laughs> Um, the first one is, is that um, today I had a therapy session with my therapist and it was really good. We talked about a lot of things that I hadn't talked to her about before and she was really just validating in a lot of my experiences and feelings. So I loved that. And then also this was the first day in a while that the weather has been really nice. So I went on a, a long walk today. So those are my pockets of joy. What about you, Siriana? Um, Today I took my dog to daycare care and she hasn't been in like three or four weeks and she dragged me the entire time there and it's like a 15 20 minute walk and then is just like passed out on my couch right now and it just like fills me with joy that she gets so jacked up and is excited because her favorite thing is other dogs so yeah, that's my pocket of joy. But yeah, let's dive right in. So if you're not familiar with Karen and my story, I will give a little background information. So Karen and I were both raised by white people. I was internationally adopted, Karen was domestically adopted, and we grew up in white neighborhoods, white schools. I attended a predominantly white church. And for both of us, college grad school was really the first time we were introduced to more people of color and the first time when we at least for me i could take this just giant breath 
and be in these spaces and be in community with these individuals and just exist as myself. And it wasn't something that I realized that I needed to do or have, but it was and continues to be so healing after being raised in so much whiteness. Yeah, for me, I feel like in college, I was still surrounded by so much whiteness. Um, and especially since I was attending like a predominantly white institution in the Midwest. Um, and I still wasn't uh, completely aware of who I was when I was an undergrad as well. I mentioned this in my first episode that we did together, but I didn't feel like I came into my blackness until I began graduate school in 2016. And yeah, you know, I was still in like this predominantly white institution in the midwest but by that and like coming into my blackness i mean that it was the first time that i was really intentionally seeking out non-white spaces and friendships and was where i felt like i could really exist as myself exactly and this fits perfectly with the first question i know we both really wanted to talk about um which is how you're navigating white spaces now that we're adults in our late 20s. I'm curious because I know it the way we grew up continues to affect how I interact with white people and white spaces now. And I'm wondering if you would share a little bit about how you interact with white spaces. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I guess I can answer that kind of by expanding on what I just said about like being intentional about spaces and people that I'm with. So yeah, for a long time, I think I ignored how the environments I was raised in really affected me. I definitely mentioned this briefly in the other episode, but I really thought that because I was so used to being in these spaces and good at interacting with white people that it didn't bother me at all. Um, But then the older that I got, the more honest I was with myself. And also when I moved out of Wisconsin, I think that really helped. And when I went to um, another school in another state, I think that really was like this breaking point for me because I was going into yet again another predominantly white environment. And, you know, graduate school is really intense. And so I was experiencing graduate school on my own as well. And so I think that this combination of like this new environment and these new stressors of graduate school really made me just like desperate to find spaces outside of my department that centered students and faculty of color um and I found those with like writing groups and just like faculty and student like circles and things like that and I really have spent I guess the last few years in graduate school participating in activities that really amplify and advocate for BIPOC folk I think that I also at that time too like entering into graduate school um I had just gotten out of a long-term relationship with a white man and was in the process of really like evaluating some of the racial tensions I felt that were a part of our relationship so like for the first couple of years when I you know was um in this new space and experiencing these new things I really was trying to be intentional about the people that I dated as well and did so by primarily seeking out relationships with BIPOC folks. I didn't realize that you had had a long-term relationship with a white man before John. So that is really interesting. I have like a million questions that I won't ask you on this podcast. It reminded me of my first ever queer relationship that I had where I was 23 and dated this white cis lesbian woman who she was in the military and was more moderate. And that relationship was so emblematic of where I was in my racial journey. 
and my racial identity because you have for me there there's two separate identities one is me being a Tamil woman and then also being a queer woman and I hadn't come into my Tamilianness or like me being able to feel angry about whiteness and white people and so but it was like such a big deal that I was finally in this queer relationship and because I also didn't have anyone kind of guiding me telling me that these experiences that I was having with this woman were wrong. Like I was like, oh, so like there were a lot of microaggressions. We did go up north in Wisconsin to visit her parents. And this was before the 2016 elections. Her parents were talking about Trump and what a great businessman he was and just a lot of different things that he quote unquote did right. And I would never never put myself in a relationship like that ever again in my life because my tolerance is because it has had to be as most BIPOC um, individuals tolerance to handle like microaggressions and racism has to be so high out of necessity especially for black and indigenous individuals um, but I'm wondering if you could relate to that as well, like because of how you were raised, like do you think that you tolerated a lot more whiteness? You can't see right now, but I'm like violently shaking my head at everything that Siriana just said. <laughs> um, yeah, because I relate to so much of that, just like the tolerating the microaggressions, you know, in a lot of ways the macroaggressions and especially in like romantic relationships, absolutely. And I think we could do an entire episode on, yeah, dating as BIPOC folks and especially dating like white people as BIPOC folk and like just how that is and yeah I mean and I think as well like I tolerate a lot of like racial microaggressions from not only white people but from you know non-white people who are fetishizing me as well I mean now I'm in like you know this long-term relationship with a white man so girl you are engaged I am an engaged woman um <laughs> but you know, like right before this relationship, I was in very intentional relationships with non-white people. And so um, when I was entering into this relationship, you know, I was skeptical of it being with a white person um, and did a lot of vetting kind of to make sure that if I was going to be with a white person, that this white person kind of fit the criteria that I needed um, and was, you know, quote unquote, woke enough to be dating a black woman and knew what it meant to date a black woman, which I have a whole episode on from my prior podcast um, about with my partner about just like exactly what you need to know to date people of color, especially black women as white people. Do you feel like it was more of like a reclaiming as you navigated your current relationship with your fiance? of like having those standards set that you won't tolerate these things. Obviously there is room for mistakes. There's room for growing and learning, which I know that we have both had to be cognizant of our entire lives of navigating that balance. But do you feel like you were able to reclaim kind of that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that with trial and error throughout the early parts of my 20s and with dating people who um, 
yet were more moderate or were who constantly like threw microaggressions my way or who were even flat out abusive like by the time that I was before I came to John and when I was um, entering into that relationship I knew exactly what I wanted and didn't want and um kind of like I was saying last week like life is too short to not honor yourself and be true to yourself and um keeping people in your circle who respect you and who um you know have similar values as you and so I feel like now navigating so much of whiteness and now in my late 20s I do not tolerate a lot more things than I did when I was younger yeah it's been interesting navigating dating right now dating in your early 20s sucks already and dating apps are awful but trying to you know expand your horizons and date people of all races is something that I have really been battling with myself because I know and sounds like I can't be racist I have black friends but I know and love a lot of white people and I know that I can feel safe around white people and so it's hard to know if I should just like take this plunge and date white men or women again and navigating that and again yeah dating as like I mean again dating as a BIPOC person of not being fetishized has been tricky to navigate as well yeah we're gonna have to do a whole episode on this because there's so much to say and unpack with dating and especially I don't know redating after not dating a certain race for a while too is really is interesting to see just how much your I guess your standards change throughout time and would love to talk more with you about that. The final thing I will add about this is that it is really interesting trying to date South Asian folks because of my adoption and having been raised by white people, but also not knowing certain background information about my life that may matter to that individual's families and stuff is always in the back of my mind when I go on these dates with these brown people and I'm like, are they going to care? Like, will this be an issue? Will this feel similar to dating a white person? And it's been fascinating to see people's reactions. Ooh, that last thing you said, will this feel similar as dating a white person is really interesting. I know, and I think that's really, I keep using the word emblematic, but it is very emblematic of my own dance that I am doing constantly with navigating the two like the privileges that I grew up with of being raised in a two-parent, educated, white household and also being a South Asian woman that was raised in the mostly upper caste Tamil community where I grew up. And so, I mean, as much as we're having an episode on it and I am a proud Tamil queer woman, it's fumbly and tricky for me to figure out. And so many people have questioned my identity growing up, mostly coming from brown people have been like, oh, you're not Indian or you're not like really Indian. You just like whatever. And so that's where that comment probably came from. Yeah, I definitely get it. Like the questioning and like for me too, like when I first met a lot of my biological family and I met a bulk of them at a family reunion, it was just like the most overwhelming feeling. And, you know, I I, I brought my white boyfriend at to the reunion and he was the only white person there and um i think you know i think he felt awkward for being the only white person there and i felt awkward too like one bringing a white man there but also just like 
not feeling like I knew how to navigate this predominantly black space because I was just so used to being occasionally with black people. And so I think we both felt just like kind of awkward in our skin at that point. And feeling that uncomfortableness, there's so many layers of grief because of our adoptions, because of the spaces that we were raised in. And it brings up a lot for me, even just like hearing that like one sentence about you because I relate to it so much. Almost like I've always felt the need to like prove my like Indianness. And I'm wondering if you feel comfortable to say like, did you worry that you going, like you coming to this reunion, which you like dived into the deep end of the pool. Oh my goodness. I can't believe you went to a family reunion. But did you, were you worried that like, not only were they going to question you and like how you were raised and all those things, but also that you were bringing like a white partner with you. Were you worried that they were like going to question your blackness? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, and... I hate to admit it, but I think that one reason why I did bring him was just like this sort of like safety blanket I had, like, um, because for one, I knew him so much better than I knew my biological family. So having him there was just like, okay, I can fall back on this guy. Um, I think also it was like, I can kind of fall back into this world in this like pocket of whiteness. Um, that I'm so used to navigating in this space of blackness that I'm not so used to navigating. And so I don't think I was worried much about how I myself would be perceived. I think people were just really happy to see me, but I definitely was worried about bringing this white guy. I think, I think I'm sure that like right away they were like, okay, she's like kind of like one of those black girls um, who dates white men, you know? Have you ever seen Save the Last Dance? Of course. What kind of question is that? <laughs> so there's that scene where Julia Stiles is like at this clinic for one of her friends and or her boyfriend's sister is needs there. Anyway, she's there. And she like someone confronts her and is like, Why are you here? Like, why are you dating like a black man? Like, you shouldn't be dating in our community, like we like kind of thing. So that's the reference that came to mind when you brought that up. Oh, what a good movie. But yeah, I mean, it's, and I think one thing that I think can, is really true is that like, at least I have a lot of friends who feel the same way is that as adults, as BIPOC adults who are dating, being intentional about not dating white people is like very much, and can be very much like this political sort of radical move and like a reclamation as well, because so many of the spaces that we operate within are so white and are so much vast within white supremacy that being intentional about who you allow in your bed basically and who you don't allow in your bed is like really radical in some ways and so I think that's also why I was trying to be as as intentional as possible after leaving a, a relationship that was white into um dating uh BIPOC people and I think that really did help well not not enough since I'm engaged to a white man (laughs) but whatever anyways um, so you know and I think that that really kind of helps to lead into a question I was thinking about 
you know, obviously we live in a very white place in the United States. And so we're constantly in white spaces. But I would love to know, like, what are some of the, I guess, quote unquote, whitest spaces that you exist in now? Ooh, okay. <laughs> this, this question is a little bit stressful and uncomfy for me. Even though when we were building this outline for kind of what vibe we wanted this episode to look like, I was like, I think we should discuss this topic. I love this. But man, the whitest space that I'm in right now and one that I've chosen and worked really hard to build is my chosen family. And a lot of them are very white. So for those of you who don't know me, I am no contact with the family that raised me and I have a really strong and beautiful chosen family and a lot of those individuals in that in my family are white and I've been really lucky that for most of the white folks that I grew up with throughout the last 29 years of my life, we've been able to grow in our own ways and our own understandings of race. Obviously, we don't relate in the same way, but as I've become stronger in my racial identity and awareness about race and racial issues, they have also grown and like are putting in the work as well. And so we've been able to kind of move through that together, which has been really helpful. But I do have a lot of white people in my life and engage in a lot of white spaces, even though I do actively seek out BIPOC spaces. And when we were talking about um, the question earlier, I was thinking about how I've lived in a bunch of different cities around the U.S. because of work. You know, I was living in Denver and I loved that city. Like, I loved Denver. It was so fun, but it was so white. And I was like, I cannot stay here. Then I moved to Austin and... Austin is also very white and and very gentrified. And so when I moved to Philly, where I live now, this city is diverse. And it's like a city of neighborhoods, people say. And like every neighborhood is just like a different pocket of some culture. And when I go on the bus sometimes, there is one white person and the bus is packed. And I love that. So I do uh, seek out BIPOC places, and the biggest one is that I continue to choose to live in this city because of its diversity, but I also take a, make a choice to engage in white spaces, and those white spaces and people that I interact now, when I first meet them, I definitely do it with caution until I know what you're about kind of like how you were saying you did with your fiance when you first started dating like what are you gonna say and there is always a small fear of mine that overarches all of my interactions with white people it doesn't matter if they're my family or friends or anything like that that if we're talking about race or politics I'm going to have this like little like pang in my stomach where I'm always just going to be like, are you going to tell me that I'm too much? Are you going to believe my lived experiences around these racial experiences that I've had? Are you going to take my word as it is and be able to digest it? So that's always interesting to navigate. It's something that I don't really like to admit because I don't want to insult any any of my loved ones. But again, it's not about that. It's just a product of how I was raised. The other super white space that I exist in that I have made an active choice to do this 
is that I have white therapists and therapy is obviously such an intense space. It's such an intimate setting. Like you're exposed to this one person who holds all of these like intense experiences about you and you don't know anything about them. And so in that there's a power dynamic and a good therapist will bring up that power dynamic and acknowledge it in the space. But stay tuned for our episode on is your therapist toxic? And then you bring race into that and then it ups the kind of, it ups the ante a lot about that power dynamic. And yes, those are those kind of top two, the top hits which are both very intimate and personal. Sometimes I'm like, (laughs) I want to get this on a shirt. Whenever, like, I think about all the people who have been like, you're racist, like, reverse racism, whatever. And I'm like, I want to get on a shirt that says, I can't be racist, I have white therapists. Oh my god, you have to get that. That's incredible. (laughs) Maybe I'll ask someone to make it for my 30th birthday this year. (laughs) Oh my gosh, yes. Also could, like, potentially be merch one day. Like That would be amazing if that was our merch. (laughs) I love that. But going off of the therapy thing, I just realized that I, when it comes back to the first question about like intentional spaces that we're seeking out or how we're interacting with spaces. um, So when I was younger, I saw a white therapist growing up. And then when I was on my own healthcare plan, when I entered into graduate school, I was very intentional about seeing a black woman therapist. And I think that has just been like so, so impactful for me to see someone who I can go into a space and not have to explain myself and have the person already understand things that I'm saying. And yeah, just that has been this, I feel like a really, really intentional practice that I've been seeking out. That just like clicked something in my brain about in some weird way at least for me it can feel oddly validating when white people because I was so invalidated and so gaslit about like the racial undertones of everything especially all the very unethical medical care I received when they validate it and they're like yes that makes sense like especially you know, over the last two years, I was having a lot of realizations about my childhood growing up and a lot of the experiences I had. And my younger sister, who was white, um, like I would go to her and like having her validate those experiences and her reactions. And then she would do something like not just listen to support and make sure that these racist experiences weren't happening was really validating and that's something I feel I don't want to feel shame about it because again it's emblematic of how I grew up maybe that can be on our merch (laughs) but it is something that has been healing for me and is hard because I don't want white people to be the thing that validates my experiences and I feel shame about it but I'm trying not to (laughs) yeah I think that's really really powerful and Yeah, just finding ways to look at it as like this reclamation, you know, also thinking about it as like, even though there is always this inherent power dynamic with therapists for that hour or however long your session is, this person is this white person has to listen to you and listen to what you are saying. And so that in itself is sort of a way for you maybe to think about like kind of taking back sort of the power and being the one who is, um, I don't know, like able to, to do the talking and not being shushed and told that you're too loud or too much, but being the one who's like, this is exactly what's happening to me and you have to listen to it. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think that I as well relate to a lot of the, 
you know, white spaces that I exist in right now. And I think for me right now, the biggest one that I'm existing in is just my living space. I'm currently living with my fiance and um, his family in this very white suburb um, outside of Minneapolis. Um, and it's been a bit of a challenge. Obviously, with being engaged to a white man, I'm inevitably going to be surrounded um, by whiteness because his family is white. You know, and not being able to choose where I live is right now, at least is really hard. And, you know, in my time living here in this white suburb, I've seen maybe just like a handful of black people and even other people of color occasionally at like Target or something. <laughs> and it, it, it's really showing me like that this definitely isn't a place I want to live for a long time. Kind of what you were talking about, like place that you live is, is really important. And um, living somewhere that I don't want to live is helping me see like what exactly I want and where I want to live next. And I know that I want to, I need to be able to see BIPOC folk on a daily basis wherever I live next. That's just like it's one of those sort of um, non-negotiables when it comes to the spaces that I have to exist in. And then similar to what you were saying, like another really white space that I exist in are my friendships. I am still really close to a lot of white people, but I'm trying and I, I try to make sure that the white people that I am friends with, like you were saying, are ones that you know, add value to my life and do not take away from my life or make it more difficult and make me perform and do more labor and friends who I can feel 100% comfortable with. Um, and honestly, I think that like planning a wedding and being in this process of picking out my guest list right now has really been a good way for me to reevaluate who I want to hold close um, and who I want to share space with on a very important day of my life. And so yeah, I guess the white people I'm friends with are also the ones I feel like are constantly, like you were saying, willing to learn and educate themselves on race, which is really important to me. And yeah, I think the last place that I exist in that is really white is my workspace and my department. Um, it's very, very white. I have so much to like, I could say about being a minority in the workplace, but you should go first before I go and just like rant. Okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, in the last episode, I mentioned how I've been really trying to work on boundaries and setting boundaries and not only like my personal relationships but also my professional relationships and I think that is really what has helped me manage being one of the few people in my department who is a person of color and when I first started my program I was the only domestic black student there black student black woman student and the person who was last there who was um a black woman was someone from my undergrad department from i don't even know maybe like 15 years ago or something like that so they're like there's just not a history of black people in my department there are no black faculty there have never been any black faculty so you know when i got there and obviously like I had gone and grown up in spaces that were also like this but I think it just was really like this was a, a huge pivot in my life a huge like new step in my life and I was entering into a time where like I mean grad school is so vulnerable and then when you on top of that bring in like you're gonna feel so much imposter syndrome around 
a room full of white people. I think that was just like, ugh. And I was just like so isolated my first year. And I just constantly felt like I needed to prove myself in my department and get involved in like a ton of departmental stuff and just tried to be this perfect model student, which, you know, I would love to do a whole episode on like this idea of like black women feeling like they need to do everything and be essentially superwomen and superheroes and just all of those stereotypes when it comes to like black women. Would love to do an episode on that but um yeah I don't know after a while of just like trying so hard especially like I don't know after the uprising happening in Minneapolis and just like seeing how nothing was changing within my department that was just like I think the the point that really like changed things for me and I was like you know I need to stop putting in this effort in my department and in a space that cannot, literally cannot fulfill me. It's not designed to fulfill me. You know, the concept of the university is one that is rooted in white supremacy. And this is going to sound really annoying, but I'm just, I constantly think about just like this black scholar, Fred Moten, who says that like the only possible relationship to the university today is like this, a criminal one, which it really means that like as students, especially as black students, we need to treat the university as something that cannot serve us. And it's essentially like the police, right? And we need to therefore take from this institution that is always taking from us. And so I think that now a way that I navigate being a minority in a workspace is really like physically limiting my time on campus and in my department as well. And also just like really taking advantage of all of the free resources. You know, I say free with like, quote unquote, because I'm still paying for them through my labor and all this stuff. But um, and, you know, all the money that the department has and the university has um, that is available there, because I always just I'm a strong believer in if the university is going to profit off of my labor, I might as well take from it, too, in as many ways as possible. So I think just like in general, like changing how I view my relationship in proximity to my department but also like the university as a whole and I say university as like capital U you know like the concept of school and of universities always being these white supremacist spaces like changing how I view that I think has really kind of helped to protect myself and help me maintain my boundaries and my sanity honestly as well um, being one of the only black people in my entire department yeah did you see that I think this happened last week, Harvard agreed, with quotes, agreed to pay a hundred million dollars in reparations to black and indigenous communities that they had previously enslaved and had ties to. I did not see that, but that is the bare minimum that Harvard can do. (laughs) Yeah, boo the Ivy Leagues. Yeah, boo. (laughs) Boo all universities, though. They're all white supremacist organizations. Yes, we, ooh, that would be such a good episode as well. It was interesting when you were talking about not trying to like, I'll just say organize within your workspace and doing that labor that like other white folks should be doing if they are ringing true to what they're protesting about or posting about or whatever. When you were talking, a bunch of different like light bulbs went off in my head because there's so many different directions. So I'm going to try to be as concise and cohesive as possible about this. But I have worked in a variety of different workspaces 
whether that's like customer service or at nonprofits. And they've all had varying degrees of diversity. A lot of the places that I waitressed in or did customer service in were heavily BIPOC individuals or working class white folks. So that was really diverse. And then I worked on some campaigns and those were very white. And one of the nonprofits that I worked at actually was incredible and healing because it was the first work environment I had ever been in like this. It was all women, like cis women, and they were all Asian or South Asian because that's the population that this organization served. Minus three white people. And during lunchtime, it was, I remember when this happened the first time where like everyone was like heating up their lunch or taking their stuff out of the fridge. And everyone was like, oh, what do you have? Like, you have that? Oh my God, I love that dish. Or, oh my gosh, I want to try that. Or, oh, that smells so good. And it, like, wasn't a big deal that you, like, had this dish that may have, like, smelled a certain way or looked a certain way or anything like that. And it was just so cool. And I just remember feeling so, like, full about it. But on the other hand, I've also had like a ton of racial experiences in my workspace. I worked at this organic market that touted their values up and down. I mean, these values are plastered on the walls of every store that they open. But when I started, the general manager there was kind of like really was not happy. And basically what happened is this yuppie organic market had never opened a store in the city. And the city of Philadelphia is a major city. There's obviously a lot of poverty, unhoused folks, and people dealing with the overdose crisis. And so I remember having white managers and like white higher ups say to myself and other coworkers that this company was unprepared to have a store in the city because they weren't prepared to deal with the problems in quotes so this manager was kind of getting in over his head and he started all of a sudden showing really weird behavior which obviously had racial undertones but then like straight up racist behaviors where he would ignore its BIPOC most of the folks that worked at this store were black individuals and just like ignoring them on the on like our shifts and it just like got really intense and so my younger sister who I met while working there, she's an organizer and is white, but is aware of her whiteness. So she was like, what do we need to be doing? And so she and I organized this kind of like secret uprising. And for me, because I also have a lot of privileges, I was like, what do I need to do? Because it's not gonna be on my black coworkers to be doing this, but you know what, who needs to, it's me and a bunch of these white people. And so we basically ended up getting this general manager removed from our store, which big shocker, didn't solve the problem though. And then a ton of other racial things happened. This is like a two years I worked there, five days a week. And my health insurance at the time was tied to this job. So nothing, minus me making sure I'm like supporting my black coworkers, I'm not like I could not get fired for this. Like no, I couldn't do anything that was like risky aside from obviously organizing. And then COVID happened and we had to organize against the company because they weren't protecting its employees and 
that was also really awesome. But then um, when George Floyd was murdered, Philadelphia is also, you know, was militarized and the National Guard came in and there were checkpoints all over the city and there were all these things going on. And then the new manager who had never done anything about how white this workplace was or any of the racial profilings that we had all been outspoken about for the last year and a half suddenly was like, oh, race exists. So there was like another level of just being gaslit in this workplace that had told me that none of these racial issues were important enough to one, get that general manager fired or two, actually address on like a systemic level. But then something else happened with a coworker and my the general manager at the time and I quit. <laughs> I had to quit and it's kind of like you were saying it's exactly how you were saying when you were like I can't be the organizer in this. I was like I have to protect my own sanity and mental health and that whole experience was so traumatic and so devastating on so many occasions that I was like I have to leave and so I quit without like a job lined up and I'm very privileged, lucky enough to have like had some security in where like I was living and who I was living with and everything like that. Yeah. And now I am a minority to some extent in my, amongst my colleagues and I will not be organizing um, because I feel just maxed out. Yeah. I, the maxing out thing. I totally get it. And I think this could lead into another episode that we were thinking about doing about like protecting yourself and like just like making boundaries for yourself. I think especially as BIPOC folk, it's so much harder for us to make boundaries for ourselves. And we are constantly pulled in so many directions and participate in so much invisible labor. And being a minority in the workspace is really hard, just on its own. But then having to deal with bullshit after bullshit is like, whew. How is this podcast leaving you feeling? I am feeling like there's so much more to say. And there's so many other ways that we can take this and I know we will take this in further episodes um it's also making me just like I think that um like just thinking over our episode about growing up in white spaces and now talking about where we are in our lives right now existing within these white spaces it really is showing me like a lot of growth that we've um had to had to have and a lot of just I don't know a lot of a lot of intention that we've had in our lives right now, which I think is really impressive and really powerful as well. How about you? I feel really tired. <laughs> this episode brought up a lot for me, which I was not expecting. We went a ton of different directions as well that I was not expecting us to go or thought that I would be open to allowing myself to go, especially speaking about the current confusion or just mess of my identity that I'm kind of dancing with and that's something I haven't spoken about so I guess wow I spoke about it on our podcast and I think we both will continually feel this as episodes we continue to make episodes but very grateful for this space and I just hold so sacred the understanding that we both have of having been raised in the spaces that we have and by white folks 
and the impact of that and the many layers that that built in our own identity. And I'm just ready to eat dinner and then go to bed. Well, thank you everyone for listening to today's episode. Please make sure to follow us on Instagram at 2m2lpod and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Make sure to rate our podcast on Apple. It helps us out a lot. We also both want to hear from you. What did you resonate with from today? Did you learn something new? Please send us a DM, comment on a post that we make. Whatever is the easiest way for you to reach us, we want to hear it. Yes, we do. Also, as a reminder, this is a bi-weekly podcast. Today was a little different since we wanted to get a full episode out sooner than later for you all, but our next episode won't come out until Sunday, May 22nd. Thank you for listening. We appreciate your existence and we know others do too. Until next time, bye.